Now the passage that Steve so helpfully took us through last Sunday morning, uh, and if you missed it at all, I'd encourage you to uh, get on the website and have a listen. I wholeheartedly endorse everything that Steve said, and especially uh, what he mentioned about the, the application to our heart, uh, very much an issue of the heart being uh, not unequally yoked with the things of this world begins with the heart I want to make one additional observation about that theme of not being yoked with unbelievers all through this letter Paul has been addressing problems with the Corinthian church and the impact that false teachers have had upon that church and upon that church's relationship back to Paul so when Paul here talks about being yoked or not yoked to unbelievers Don't just assume that he can only be talking about people outside of church. Because I think Paul also had in mind those within the Corinthian church who are causing so much damage there. It is possible that under the same church roof there are those who are the righteous in Christ and those who remain in their own unrighteousness. Those who are still in darkness with those who are of the light. Those who are of Christ and those who are of Satan. It is possible to have those two groups under the same roof. Now in one sense, that isn't a problem or an issue. In this sense, we'll often be aware of unconverted people who regularly meet with us and we welcome them. Because we want them to come under the sound of the word of God. We want them to come under the gospel. But if that differentiation ever becomes blurred, that's where it becomes a big danger. I'll give you an example I came across many years ago. Uh, As a young preacher, I remember visiting a Baptist church not very far outside of the Merseyside area, probably one that none of you will know of. And in talking to one of the members, he openly acknowledged that one of the deacons, who was also the leader of the Sunday school, was not actually a believer. Would you imagine that? That was a yoke that should never have been put in place. Sometimes it might be more subtle. This is why as a church, for example, we have to be very careful when we're considering Applications for church membership. This is why as a church, we are perhaps more fussy than some other churches are about which churches we have close fellowship with and work alongside. Please don't read into that that I have suspicions about every church that isn't part of Listen Liverpool. That's not the case. But we have to take care of these things. It is most certainly why as a church we distance ourselves from ecumenism. We most certainly will never be sharing a platform with the Roman Catholic Church. Church of England is a rather more complicated picture because whilst there are individual churches and clergy who we might be happy to stand with because such churches and clergy do exist in the Church of England. I've met them, I know some of them. I could never stand Belvedere Church alongside them as a denomination. The current Bishop of Liverpool is the patron 
of Liverpool Gay Pride and gives his full support to same-sex marriage, for example. It's sad to say, but there are, there are times and situations where these verses that we looked at last week about not being yoked unequally, they actually also have to be applied to those who claim to be Christian believers. Now we need an awful lot of grace and discernment and wisdom in these things, which is one of the reasons why you need to pray for church elders. You must remember that it's possible to use all the same vocabulary that we use, but to be preaching a very different message and to be preaching a very different gospel and a very different Jesus, even though all the words are the same. Do bear that in mind. Anyway, that's not our theme this morning. That was last week. Back to chapter 7. And at verse 2. Now, if you haven't already experienced it personally, being a Christian can be an emotional roller coaster at times. Paul has a lot to say about emotions, his own and those of others, and that's true in this chapter. He's going to show us how our emotional responses can be completely legitimate. At the same time, he's going to show us that those emotions that we go through should not and don't need to resort in ungodly reactions and responses. It's very helpful, his example here. And we're going to break down the chapter into three parts. And we're going to be thinking about this topic. Emotional, but godly. You are allowed to be emotional as a Christian, but godly. There's actually probably something a bit weird about you if you're never emotional, isn't there? But godly. So, point one, emotions, real but comforted, real but comforted, verses 2 to 7. Now, Steve mentioned this last week, verses 2 to 4 of chapter 7 are very similar in theme and tone to verses 11 to 13 of chapter 6. Open your hearts to us, he says to the Corinthian church, we haven't wronged you in any way. Your hearts are closed to us. You've closed your hearts to us. Paul is burdened for the Corinthian church. And he says his heart is wide open to them. You know what that means. Don't need me to explain that to you. But they've closed their hearts to him. Perhaps they've been convinced by others who've come into their church that he has wronged them. He has corrupted and defrauded them. That his gospel message has not been the truth. That the lives of faith that he has nurtured in them have been spurious and suspicious. That he has exploited them for his own gains. Well, these things he strongly refutes in verse 2. And if these are the things that are being said against him by a church that he founded, how, how painful this situation must be to him. Nevertheless, look at how Paul speaks of them and deals with them in verses 3 to 4. I'm not saying this to condemn you. You are in our hearts to die together, to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you, my boasting 
on your behalf. And later on, it's clear that Paul has been speaking of the Corinthian church in this way to Titus before Titus left to visit Corinth. The end of verse 14, Titus has found that my boasting about you is true. So even in the midst of all this turmoil, Paul has nevertheless been speaking well of the Corinthians. He hasn't turned against them. He hasn't turned on them. How often and easy it is for someone in Paul's situation, the way he's being treated, how easy it is for malice, for resentment, for spite to rise up. We're injured by what's being said about us. The heckles rise within us and we steady to retaliate and to give as good as we get. And Paul shows us, just as Christ did, that whilst we really can't help our emotional response to something, how we behave is a choice that we make. We can't really help the emotional response that rises up within us. But how we then behave is a choice that we make. Says Paul, this is not me condemning you. My love for you, my concern for you, they run far too deep for that to happen. Even now I think of you as being those I would live with and die with. He knows that God has done a genuine grace work in these people. He's been with them. He's lived amongst them. He knows that God has done a genuine thing in these people. And so he still speaks well of them. He doesn't badmouth them to others. Have you heard what they're saying about me in Corinth? Call themselves Christians? Not Paul. Not Paul. That might be my response. That might be your response. It's not the example Paul gives us. Has he turned to gossiping about them? Running them down? Not a bit of it. He continues to defend them. Speaks well of them to Titus. So we notice Paul's example here. He has had to challenge them, but he's done it personally. And he's done it directly between Paul and them. That's between him and them. In public, he remains on their side and he fights their corner. Because he knows, he knows that most of the people in this church are genuinely converted believers, but they've come under the influence of bad company. They've come under the influence of plausible, persuasive teachers who are leading them astray. And despite all of this, these circumstances have not been able to rob him of his comfort and, enjoy, and his joy in what God has done in them, nevertheless. But his concern to hear how things are going is great. And he does feel anxious. And he is restless. 
Now, he's taken quite a large digression in this letter, as Paul frequently does when he's writing. And in the last four chapters, he's been expounding upon themes that he mentioned early in the, earlier in the letter. But now at this point, at verse 5, he takes us back to where he was in chapter 2. Where he tells us that there was a great gospel ministry in Troas, do you remember? But he was so troubled in his soul, he just couldn't put himself properly to the preaching and to the ministry that was there. And so he left Troas and he went to Macedonia, that's in northern Greece. And that's in chapter 2 verse 13. And he takes us back to there now. When we came to Macedonia, so he's... He's had this big digression, now he's going back. Let's pick up that thought from back there. We're back in Macedonia. Our bodies had no rest, troubled on every side, chapter 7, verse 5. Outside, conflict. Inside, fears. Which of us hasn't known that? There's a great danger of looking back at the New Testament church through rose-tinted spectacles. Don't you see Paul and all of his fellow workers moving from town to town, only ever seeing great swathes of people coming to salvation, church after church being planted, spiritual victory after spiritual victory, and so they strode on. That's not what it was like. And that's, what the, that's not what the New Testament reveals that it was like. It was hard it was arduous labour. There were many discouragements and it all took its toll on Paul. It nearly cost him his life. He was beaten to the point of death, literally and emotionally. There was much opposition. All of these things that we read in the Acts of the Apostles, they were hard-won victories on many occasions. Just look at him in verse 5. No rest, troubled, conflict. Paul's emotions went through every colour of the rainbow. Trouble, fear, sleepless nights, downcast, dare we even say at times, depressed. How is the church? Has Titus arrived safely? How are they responding to my letter? Is it going to achieve the, the, the desired result? Where is Titus now? Is he on his way back? When will he arrive? Will he arrive at all? Nevertheless, verse 6, nevertheless, God comforts the downcast. He comforts. And by the end of verse 7, Paul is talking again about his rejoicing. Why? Because God brings comfort to the downcast. And you can feel like Paul did in verse 5. And still rejoice. Because that's the experience of God's people when you're in Christ. You see... These things that we read of in verse 5, as real as they were to Paul, 
They didn't consume him. They didn't defeat him. Because God brings comfort so that they can't. These things will no longer or forever be the things that define him and describe him. Because God brings comfort for the downcast. These things were overshadowed by a greater joy because God comforts the downcast. Titus arrived. He returned from Corinth. And that was God's doing. And we have to acknowledge that it must also have been God's timing. And God's timing was such that Paul was not spared all of those troubles that we read about in verse 5. He wasn't spared them. He had to wait for Titus to return. And in the waiting, no doubt Paul learned even more how to wait upon the Lord. And Paul had to wait. And in the waiting, no doubt he learned in a fresh way how to trust in the Lord. And Paul had to wait. And in the waiting, had to learn again to lean upon the Lord. And the Lord kept him. And the Lord preserved him. And he'll keep you. And he'll preserve you when you go through those seasons like Paul did. And God will comfort you like God comforted Paul. And you will yet rejoice like Paul did. The Lord brought to Paul a means of comfort. God does that, you know. He brings means for comfort. For Paul, it was Titus and good news. And God will use means of comfort for you in your life as well. Because he doesn't abandon his people. He doesn't forsake his people. So for Paul, it was... First of all, the fact of Titus returning safely, but also that Titus returned with good news from Corinth. Titus has returned, and he himself has been strengthened and encouraged by the believers in the Corinthian church. And Paul's heart must have leapt within him as he starts to hear from Titus how the church have responded to the letter that he sent. They're filled with an earnest desire to do that which is right and good. They've been brought to a place of mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Mourning over sin. Mourning how they've allowed themselves to think so badly of Paul. Utterly ashamed of themselves before God. But now overflowing with gratitude and love and goodwill towards Paul. They've all been on an emotional coaster down in Corinth. But all of them have known that comfort that only God can bring. Secondly, emotions and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Verses 8 to 11. Paul says that he's sorry that he had to deal with them about their errors with language and tone that was very firm 
very direct, knowing that they would find his rebuke very painful to listen to. And he knew it. He knew it as he was writing it down. He knew it as he sent it. Now, clearly in the normal run, normal run of things, a more gentle approach between believers would be the more usual and appropriate tone. Gentleness. Not to the point of ducking any issues, but gentleness nonetheless. However, things in Corinth, as we've seen, have deteriorated. Previous efforts to correct haven't worked. They had been made sorry by an earlier letter, verse 8, but only for a while. Paul has had no choice but to ramp up the pressure. And he was sorry that he'd needed to do it. But he's not sorry because it's achieved the desired result. You see, concern for their spiritual restoration has to override concern about hurting their feelings. He needs to restore them spiritually. And Paul's hard letter has done its work and it's produced in the Corinthian believers a godly sorrow. And godly sorrow always, always, always takes you to one place. Repentance. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Godly sorrow is sorrow over sin, not feeling sorry for yourself. Godly sorrow acknowledges sin and feels it for what it is in God's eyes. Godly sorrow confesses sin and turns away from it. Godly sorrow produces salvation either bringing it to the sinner for the very first time or to the wayward Christian with greater force than they've ever known before. And godly sorrow demonstrates itself by bringing about change. Verse 11, you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. It's changing them, this godly sorrow. God is at work in them, in their sorrow, by his grace. And he's changing them. This is what godly sorrow does. Because godly sorrow is God at work. They've been brought back to their senses by this sorrow. They're determined to put everything right. They're clear-minded now about the things that have been wrong. They know what they must do concerning those who are in error. And godly desire and commitment has been rekindled again within them. This is what godly sorrow does. They've demonstrated in their actions that all is well again. Now when they got that letter and it was read out to them, they haven't thrown their rattle out of the pram. They haven't taken their ball home and were not speaking to Paul ever again. They're not going to appear on YouTube as the latest edition of Road Rage. They're not going to go on the Jeremy Kyle show and tell the whole world how nasty Paul's been to them. Because that's not, that's not what godly sorrow produces. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Oh, what a sinner I've been. What a fool I've been. 
and godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Leads to you walking back to the Lord and being reconciled and restored once again. Godly sorrow has gripped their hearts, gripped their minds, and repentance is the fruit of God's work within them. And it can be no other way. We speak much of Christian joy and peace. We speak much of having rest for our souls, and rightly so, because these are glorious blessings that only Christians can truly know. But you know, before those things can be known, there needs to be sorrow. Sorrow over sin. Sorrow which causes you to cast yourself upon Christ and upon the mercy and the grace of God. A sorrow which actually comes from God and which leads you to repentance and salvation. That's how God works in the life of sinful people. And then finally, in emotions, we see the Christians rejoicing. The Christians rejoicing from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. I wrote so that you can know my care. And that we rejoiced exceedingly more when Titus returned. Now the immoral behaviour of one of the members at Corinth has played a significant part in the troubles there. And Paul wasn't taking sides or showing favoritism one way or the other when he tried to deal with that issue. He wasn't dealing uh, with partiality either towards the brother who's caused the offence or the brother who's been offended. His greater concern has been for the whole church and the impact it's having on all of God's people and that they might see just how much he cares for them despite all of the unfair and unkind things that are being said about him by them. And you see in these final verses how much we depend upon one another for our common good within the church. Your comfort has been my comfort. That's been, that's been the testimony of Titus and that's been the testimony of Paul. Your comfort is our comfort. The joy of Titus has brought joy to the rest of us and he was refreshed by you. And Paul rejoices because the things that he knew to be true about the Corinthian believers, all the good report about them, which Paul has given to Titus in the past, they've all been proven to be correct. There's no backbiting, no jealousies, no rivalries, longing only to do one another good and rejoicing when it happens. So if I'm having a bad day and I see a brother or sister over here who's obviously having a good day, what do I do? Go over and spoil it for them so that they're in the same boat as me? Do my best to look as glum as I can so that I get people's attention and sympathy? Squirrel myself away and have my own private little pity party? No. I rejoice because they're rejoicing. Even if I'm having a bad day, I rejoice that they're having a good one. And actually, that will bring you great comfort. That will comfort your soul. What about the brother or sister who's struggling? 
Well, I can share with them. I can share with them how the Lord brought comfort to my soul when I was troubled. I can encourage them that although right now it may be hard to feel anything but the, pra- the pain, they will yet praise him because he truly is the God of all comforts. He really is and he really will. And here's one final source of rejoicing. Kind of links into the children's talk. To see other believers living in obedience to the word of God. When did you last rejoice over that? To see a brother or sister living in obedience to the word of God. To see their life changing. As the word of God has its effect upon them and transforms them and changes them. What a great source of rejoicing that ought to be. You see, Paul's letter is more than just a letter. Paul's letter is divinely inspired because he's an apostle. Paul's letter is the word of God. And the Corinthians, in obeying Paul's letter, actually have been obedient to the word of God. And Paul rejoices. And when Christians do that, you see, Paul rejoices and Paul can have confidence in them because he knows they're in a very safe place and they're in a very good place. The word of God is doing its work in them. And he rejoices. Paul teaches us in this chapter that it's okay to be a Christian and to be emotional. But more important than that, emotions are no excuse for a Christian not to live a godly life.